Hello, wizards. My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Hello to all you lovely book club listeners. We are back with another episode for the Frugal Wizard's Handbook to Surviving Medieval England. Still not a huge fan of that title, especially when I have to say it every time. (laughs) Agree. But before we dive into the episode, let's start by saying thanks. Thanks to Matt for becoming a patron. Yes. Welcome. Thank you so much to Matt, the tarmac worm. We got a lot of mats over there. And so we I do have to a lot of mats. If your name is Matt, you should join the Patreon simply to meet all the other mats. Yes, the Cosmere loving mats specifically and all of our other patrons. Right now we are having the Yumi Secret Project number three book club that is going on there. Love the book. Love the interactions we are having with fans. But right now, we're going to be talking about Frugal Wizard Handbook. And what any of you people can do is, in celebration of Brooke and I's birthday months, you can give us one of those ratings, one of those reviews, one of the little stars or the upvotes or the likes or whatever it may be that suits your podcast rating system. It is birthday season for us. We don't ask for much. We don't often ask for these types of things, but it would be so great if you've got a moment and you just go to the podcasting rating location of your choice and give us a rating or a review to help other Cosmere fans find the podcast and uh, join the conversation. Yeah, that really is the major reason we ask. It is not just to inflate our own egos, but instead to spread the message of Cosmere Conversations to all those out there who may be out in the darkness and the wilderness of no Cosmere Friends land. Yeah, exactly. And the more ratings and reviews the podcast gets, the more that the all-powerful algorithm will show the podcast to people who might be looking and we want all of those people to find the Cognitive Realm lighthouse of the podcast. Okay, the analogies are great. And let's revert a little bit away from the Cosmere itself. Though we'll do our best to bring Frugal Wizard into... Everything comes back to the Cosmere. As it should. However, last time we discussed mythology and kind of learned a lot about the baseline existing world we have here in the frugal wizards handbook of course there's a lot of crossover to our own world as the dimensions are close enough that travel can happen between them but different enough to get that variation that the entire story is built around and that mythology really does set the scene for the various forms of magic that exist in this dimension and i think that while the mythology was similar it is in this magic portrayal where really Brandon's fantasy elements are coming in. This is the invented part. So a little bit less of the research vibe on this episode and a little bit more fun talking about 
the runestones, the white and the weird. Yeah, and I think this is quite a departure from magic systems in the Cosmere, which, as we've talked about quite a bit, are more quote-unquote hard magic systems that have a lot of logic and basis in science, physics, all that. This magic system is much lighter, I would say. Not only do we see a lot less of it, and Mm -hmm. so there's a lot that is a little bit, you know, wand wavy of just like, we don't know, it just kind of works. But I think the magic itself is also a little bit more... mm, Esoteric? Yeah, esoteric, ethereal. I would agree. And I think that one of the elements that Brandon has is the characters from Earth who have some quote-unquote knowledge of the weird they present a very scientific explanation that we'll talk more about in detail later. Yeah. But it is so interesting to see how people from different worlds in the Cosmere, we would say something like someone from Rashar versus someone from Nalthus. But here we have these kind of two very different groups of people who are trying to describe the same magic or the same phenomenon. And in the Cosmere, there is that similarity. But as far as we know, this weird is unique to this dimension. Yeah, that's certainly what it seems like. But for the people who are living in this dimension, Sephawin and Aelston are primary examples. There's more obvious and more benefits from the kind of baseline magic of the runestones and then a kind of a fear element with the white. So we'll talk about those first, and then we'll kind of nitpick and describe the weird to the best of our ability. But let's start with the runestones. Yeah, these are present in every sort of group of humans, any settlement, whether that be a smaller settlement like the original town that John comes to where he finds Sephawin and Aelston, or the progressively larger settlements that they encounter upon their journey. Each one of those settlements has a runestone, which is basically exactly as it sounds, a large stone that has letters etched into it. And those letters glow blue. The stronger they glow, that means the more powerful they are. Now, powerful, obviously, begetting the question of like, what power? What do they do? Right. And we have this description from the story. Quote, the runestones bind and empower whites within the boundaries of our villages. End quote. So, the runestones and the whites seem to go hand in hand, a almost channeling of the whites in yeah. some way. Yeah, and that's- the runestones are kind of for the purpose of controlling the whites. It does seem like the whites gain something from that mm-hmm. influence as well, though. We have this quote, when the lands whites are within the boundaries of a runestone, they are offered peace. They have a choice. A binding does not force them. It encourages them to settle down, to pick a home, to serve. The stone empowers them with the ability to protect and defend. But if they are not treated well with offerings, they may still become a bog, end quote. And bogs, just for a reminder, are bad and destructive versions of whites that usually runestones repel and kind of keep away from the villages. Yeah. But back to that description that you just read, the binding, not forcing them, but encouraging them to settle down. You know, we can't make 
all of the Cosmere connections, but there's an element to the white that we see at least some similarity to the shades from Threnody. Mm. A... I feel like the shades would be more like a bog. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so the, 100%. The option that the shades seem not to have right now in the current story that we have in the Cosmere is the shades are maybe stuck in the bog form yeah. and don't have this magic the rune stones that can help them transition. My question is, can a white go through different experiences in their white life? Like, do they choose different things at different times? Is there a, mm. a time in their existence rather than just say like their lives? But is there a time in a white's existence when they go, you know what? I'm looking to settle down. I want to find myself a lady white. I'm going to protect some of those human folks and maybe gain something that they didn't have before. Yeah, it seems kind of an extension of the social structure of this world of a medieval scenario where groups of humans are more powerful together, right? Mm, like you yeah, sort of all gather together, not only for the aspect of having people to do all of the jobs that need to be done, right? So if you're in a big group, you've got your people who can be soldiers, you've got Specialization. your mothers, you've got your carpenters, like mm -hmm. everyone's got a job for the collective. Exactly. And being in a group allows you to do that. Not only that, but it provides you a emotional and mental um, foundation and, and fortitude against and... attackers against you know disease against everything that life yeah. brings up to you yeah yeah but also, and also just like the sense of community yes and i it seems like that is sort of being extended to these spirits mm -hmm. where the runestone is sort of like here like come be a part of our group you're going to have a job right you're going to protect and defend right and also the group is going to provide things for you they're going to provide food so they're going to give you a place they're going to give you a job they're going to give you resources and we're all going to live in harmony together or at least more harmony than the whites typically have in their existence yeah i guess that's the question is like when they are not bound by a runestone what is that experience like for a white seemingly it must be unpleasant because they theoretically enjoy being bound to a runestone interestingly the runestones offer additional protection against the hordermen who are human and not whites. Yeah. And so there isn't only this connection to white. There is something that is, you know, physically either repelling or convincing the Horderman to stay away. Well, it's not explicitly said, but I think this might be one in the same where because a runestone allows you to bind whites to your location to defend it, when the Horderman come to attack, the they have to whites. fight the whites. Yes. Okay. I actually thought Which that is there what was... we see at the end in yes, the big battle. Course. Yeah. I thought that there was an additional element and I could totally be wrong. So let me know what you think over on the comments. I thought there was some like additional aspect of magic that was working directly on the outside humans. And so that there was like a tribe created with our humans and the whites, and they were inside the runestones, and both whites and 
aggressive humans outside the runestones were all, you know, influenced by the runestones. Now, that could be wrong. The I only... don't think so. Okay, the only thing might be you have to face our whites, and our whites are tough, and they like us. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing about this story, though. We don't get a whole lot of information about how all of this works. It's just little mentions here and there. So it is unclear. We do have a little bit more detail that we can bring in here from Aelston, who says, quote, Hordeman scops are powerful, Aelston explained. Their boasts intimidate the lands whites, negating the power of our stones, end quote. Yeah, that's interesting. So then it does sound like the whites are the things that are being weaponized against the Hordeman, and the Hordeman have the scops who then can convince the lands whites to not fight them. Yeah, it's interesting because they're basically directly fighting the whites, not attacking the runestones so much. Like, that's not their avenue of attack. It's all against the whites. Though, from my understanding, if you took away the runestones, there would be no white cooperation. Well, I think the runestone is probably in the middle of the town. So to get to it, you have to get through the whites. Of course. I think that that is also in line with some of our real world connections to runestones, which I'll save for just a little bit later. Okay, But these are certainly things that exist here on Earth as well. And we'll talk about how and what the... But let's stay in the story world for a little bit longer because the power of the runestones seems to be failing. Yeah. Not necessarily only when they're under attack, but just in general. And maybe like the power of the world is failing. That's a question mark. Yeah, there's certainly something going on with the underlying power and magic in this world. And it is said that specifically the West Warrens are not able to restore their runestones to their full power because of Woden's prohibition on writing. So it's almost like the the runes that are inscribed in them need to be re-inscribed right. every, you know, couple hundred years or something. And because they're not able to keep up the maintenance on the runestone itself, it is less powerful. Okay, so this is now, for my comparison that we should not be doing to the Cosmere, a little bit like stamps. <laughs> yeah, with where shy. it like wears off after a while. Exactly, yeah. and you need to renew the magic, kind of, you know, channeling the magic again through the, the mm-hmm. written runes. Yeah, that's a great call. Before discussing kind of the whites in a little bit more detail, I did at least want to give the promised real world connection to runes because it's allowing me a little bit of investigative work. I put on my Sherlock <laughs> Holmes cap and Last episode, I mentioned some speculation about, like, what's the original homeland of the West Warrens Mm -hmm. and where are the Hordemen coming from? Mm -hmm. The history in our own world may give us some clues because runestones used to mark roads, give directions, but also found in the center of towns in religious locations from various different cultures, which is an interesting note that I'll come back to in just a second. But these runestones vary in size from maybe like a basketball size to the more large Neolithic blocks that you may be thinking about from something like Stonehenge. Stonehenge, though, 
importantly, not an example of rune stones. Those are kind of different uh, things entirely when you're looking at just large structures with rocks or other natural materials. Rune stones, having this element of writing on them, communicating something, and those things often lost to time, appeared in our world to really come into widespread use between the 7th and 12th centuries. And so that's putting us right in the quote-unquote medieval England dimension-hopping possibility, uh, avoiding the, the late Middle Ages, but, you know, smack dab in the middle of where we think we are in time. And while they are found throughout Scandinavia, they are not evenly spread throughout Scandinavia. They are actually highly concentrated in Sweden, modern day Sweden. Oh. And the even within Sweden, there's not even distribution. They are hyper concentrated in Sweden in the areas or the districts of Upland and Soder Mainland. Of the known rune stones, and most of the large ones are believed to be known, their whereabouts are considered known, it looks like there's somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 known rune stones throughout Scandinavia and a few other locations, like, for example, the Isle of Man, now part of Great Britain. Uh, But of those two to 3,000, about 2,500 exist in Sweden. So the vast majority are located in just a few areas, which kind of points to the history of runestones being very, like, tribe-centric, yeah. very localized, and then spread outward in use mm. or popularity yeah. from what you can imagine was expansion of this tribe. Yeah. And that leads me to believe that in the story world, the Hordermen are probably from Sweden or an area in Scandinavia around there. And that's where the West Warren's original homeland was before they arrived on the eastern shore of the British Isles. Very interesting. This has been my Sherlock Holmes corner. And I just think it's really interesting that runestones in Scandinavian culture are often at religious sites. But then churches and later, like clearly religious iconography that came later were built on top of or around the rune stones. And there's a lot of speculation to like why this was done or even was it done Mm -hmm. or did people just like pick up the rune stones and walk them over to the church? (laughs) But there is just an interesting aspect of people in the past had an association with a place and then hundreds or even a thousand years later a kind of different group of people with different beliefs literally build their church on top of a room like the same place. Yeah. And maybe they did that purposefully so they could kind of like, you know, be part of their religion and just like slowly creep over. But it's also, I think, an aspect of when people give something or someplace importance, other people recognize that. Yeah. It's kind of like a we're going to build our Christian site on top of your rune stone from a medieval religion and belief system because you bestowed this place and this stone with With power. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like the binding of the whites, the binding of something, some aspect that like humans can feel. Sure. Yeah. Like a harnessing of energy. Sure. Even if that is just the energy of humanity to gather. Right. And a recognition maybe from later humans. I'm not saying like, I'm not trying to get like woo woo or anything like that, but just a recognition from later humans that 
you gave this site importance. Therefore, it has importance to us now. Yeah. Wow. That was a really, that was a fun little segue. Let's go back to the story world, though, and discuss whites, because I don't think that the runestones in our world were binding whites <laughs> you to don't a location. Know that. I'm not 100% certain. We still don't know what Stonehenge is, so anything is possible. Yeah, and I see on the History Channel that like ancient aliens built the pyramids, and there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on. <laughs> I think we should start by defining the word white. Which is strange word. It is not, if you are an audiobook listener, it is not W-H-I-T-E, like the color white. It is W-I-G-H-T-S. And because English is fun, we say those words the same. (laughs) A white is defined as a mythical, sentient, undead being. And in the story world, they are also referred to as lands white, that makes a lot of sense because the binding of the land. Right. I wonder, though, if that begs the question of, are there sea whites? Ooh. Because, of course, these are also like, you know, Viking or proto-Viking people. I want to know, do they take off on their ships and have a rune or have some type of sea whites that travel with them? Wow, I really want the spinoff now. Okay, the spinoff is a, we follow a group of Hordemen and start learning about the Hordeman culture. Obviously, they've got like struggles that we haven't seen yet. And we find out the reason why they are so aggressive. Like maybe there's some terrible plague back in the Hordeman homeland. Mm-hmm. And so they are, you know, desperately striking out. And so we follow them on an ocean voyage where they have to deal with sea whites. I love it. Mostly by the whites, because the whites. Seemingly, their power is primarily to either put things together or to take things apart. So either like construction or destruction. And when they fight humans, that means that they unravel human bodies. Incredibly brutal, but it also, you know, impacts the technology and the disassembling of technology to such an extent that when it happens to Runian's phone, it is said to even break apart the motherboard to its component pieces. Yeah, Runian asks his quote-unquote white, aka Logda, (laughs) to take apart Quinn's phone. And yeah, she goes like all the way down, which then of course makes me wonder if whites are also able to like pull atoms apart like how far does that go yeah is it i would say maybe elemental or atomic or like our two different uh scales that we're talking about here i loved the way that this was presented and progressed in the book where the power of the whites begins presented so innocuously as you know we give them berries and then they like fix your shoe or whatever these very home-oriented, sweet, innocent, simple tasks, and then, you know, stacking stones, etc., etc. So we kind of get an idea that they can assemble things and disassemble things. Nowhere in my mind did it ever occur to me that they would be able to disassemble a human body. And so then when that happens in that final battle, you know, I felt like I had no clue what to expect, what this was going to be like. And then seeing this power that had been clearly established applied in such a way 
was a super powerful reveal, I thought. Yeah, it really brings into clarity just how dangerous the whites are, but then yeah. also how important the rune stones are as well. Yeah, because you're hearing about it throughout the entirety of the story. Mm -hmm. Oh, we, we need the whites. They protect us. The Hornemen, they're so dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And then to finally see it in action and really realize the significance of this for these people was super powerful. The ability to build and destroy is something that I feel like is actually missing a little bit in the regular Cosmere stories oh. that we talk so much uh -huh. about. They're often maybe because of the shard nature, the divided nature of the shards. They're kind of like one directional in a lot of ways. And yeah. then Brandon uses his creativity to like play with that one direction, but like pushing and pulling iron and steel, that type of thing, instead of just flying, there are these kind yeah. of simple and direct uses of power. But I love the concept that if the whites can destroy something, they can also recreate something or mm. fix something. Mm -hmm. It has an important aspect and an important tie-in to the quantum question when it comes to the weird that we'll get into later. But the maybe philosophical question of, does time need to go forward? Oh, And do sure. the whites experience time directionally like yeah. humans do? Yeah, yeah. But we'll, we'll save that for a little bit later. I just, it introduces oh some questions. Yeah, you just opened up oh, an entire can of worms in my brain. Congratulations. Those are the whites. <laughs> Just a couple of other notes on whites. They do seem to be limited in their location. For example, Yazad says that there are not whites in his homeland in what we presume is somewhere in the Middle East. Mm. So then we come to this question again. If the West Warrens, you know, started somewhere else and migrated to the Isle, the British Isle. Did they bring the whites with them? Did they bring runestones with them? And the runestones were binding the whites. And so the whites came too, is what I would assume. Yeah. And I think that there might be an element of heraldic influence or a reference to the heralds in that there are real people who became the heralds in the Stormlight Archive but then there is a belief and a religion around those characters that creates a cognitive shadow fueled by people's belief. And those things are not necessarily in perfect align. And I think, you know, we have examples of breaking and stress on the system because of a mismatch maybe between the people and how long they have been alive, and the cognitive shadows. Maybe. Maybe. This, this is, is a theory that we talk about a lot, which is why I want to just like be clear that it is a theory. Here, I think that there might be an element, though, of belief triggering the existence of the whites. So not necessarily the runestones like dragging them along. Or but are like they a creation of the gods? Like, if the West Warrens migrated and we think they brought their gods with them, mm -hmm. that's what it sounds like from what they have said, then are, like, do the Whites appear as a side effect of the gods, similar to something like a spren, mm -hmm. which arises out of latent investiture? Latent investiture and human belief. 
or sentient belief about an item, a thing. No, because any piece of investiture left alone for long enough will achieve some type of sentience. Some type of sentience, yes. But on Rashar specifically, the people are influencing what the spren are, and the spren are influencing what the people think that they are. And it creates a back and forth pattern and a relationship structure, even with non- radiant spren and i think that could be kind of what's going on here it may even be as simple as there are whites everywhere or there could be whites everywhere but the west warren and and horderman people believe in the whites and like channel Mm. the whites and because they believe in them the whites come into more existence like their actual existence questions questions not a lot of answers but plenty of speculation that's what you're here for right yeah i think the last important thing to say about whites is that they are not able to be seen in the sense that you will die (laughs) either you will die or the white will die yes according to i think that's sephawin who says that if you happen to catch sight of a white, either you or the white is going to die. And Sephawin is saying that she sort of constantly lives in fear that the shadows in the corner of her vision, she will one day catch full full sight of and die. Which would be a bummer. Bummer. (laughs) Not a great way to go. Yeah. Speaking of Sephawin, let's talk about scops and what scops jobs are in this whole magical ecosystem. Yeah, please give me a quote from the book. Quote, the Scops are Freig's heritage. We do what she no longer can, directing the weird and protecting the land from bogs. And we remember, for no longer can the runes do it for us. End quote. So just as a reminder, Freig is Woden's wife who gave humans writing and is no longer around. Much like Aylston, I would like to add, quote, some say the Scops serve Lagna, end quote, which would make a lot of sense in regards to the prohibition on writing and Lagna's connection to being able to steal words. She has some type of power regarding language and words. We talked about the connection to Loki and the linguistic connection to language. So perhaps there is... A like double recognition from Lagna as a god and the Scops as people that Freig did something important and they are trying to keep that around. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Even if it started as coming from Freig, Lagna is the one who like stole writing from Woden and tried to give it back to the humans. And so that line that lineage sort of transfers to Logna in that way not only Mm -hmm. the writing but also the scop training which is what we see at the very end of the book with Sephawin recruiting new scops and Logna specifically says that she's not picky about who becomes scops but she is trying to build up her following yeah because when Aylston says that the scops serve Logna Sephawin responds with nonsense. We wait for Woden's forgiveness. And I think that it's important to remember the belief system that these people have is also like up 
to question. It's unknown kind of yeah. like exactly what's happening, even by the people who desperately believe that something is happening. Yeah. I want to also call out that in that original quote, it said that scops also are the memory keepers of this people, particularly because they are no longer able to write. They can't write down their histories, their stories. And so scops also take on this role as storyteller and historian, keeping the lineage of the people going. Yeah, we often hear about different cultures or society that have oral traditions versus written traditions. And what's not often talked about is a society that would go from having written communication, written histories into one that only had oral histories and like how chaotic that would be. And then the, it it would just, you know, be society breaking, which I think is why it often doesn't happen because it wouldn't be great. And so if it did, it would probably be because something bad happened. (laughs) We know that Sephawin is able to see white. She says, quote, I see shadows, honored Aleph. She said, her voice small, at the corner of my vision, the size of the shadow indicates the power of the white, end quote. And we believe that this power was given to her by Logna, who we see later in the book, giving this same type of sight to Runian and sounding like she's sort of had a hand in the cultivation of Sephawin. But there is actually a different way of looking at Sephawin's power. She says, quote, I was born with the night marks. Which are what? Three deep blue spots, she said, birthmarks on your back. It means you are chosen by Woden. Or cursed by him, Elston noted. The two are often interchangeable. End quote. And so I'm curious how much of that is true. Was she really marked by Woden? Is this Logna uh, just copying mm-hmm. the like Woden thing? I would think so. Using the same method of blessing or yeah. cursing yeah. a human, but just from a different god. Exactly. That's... The vibe that I got with what we eventually learn in this story. Yeah, agree. And then in terms of the sort of function of the scop, besides just going around to the towns and like sharing stories, Mm -hmm. they boast. They have this poetry rap battle (laughs) talent. And the, the point of the boasts is to empower whites and to persuade them to listen to the scop. So the scop sort of has a mediating role between the runestones and the whites, where it seems like she's sort of persuading them to do the thing that then the runestone like locks in. Yeah, I think that the runestones are like the permanent version of what scops are capable of. Yeah. And maybe the question that we had earlier about how did the whites get there, the answer is scops. Scops are what are more versatile than rune stones, mm. and they may be the thing that can find whites where they didn't otherwise exist or didn't know they existed, channel them to the area, the village that they want, yeah. and then the rune stone kind of locks them in. That seems like yeah. a good role, but not the one that Sephawin serves anymore because her boasts don't work, her power's weakening. Yeah, well, and not only Sephawin's, she says that none of the Scops boasts work. And so they are uh, figureheads, sort of, at this point. They're occupying a role that is a symbol of power and a symbol of a position in society, but is 
kind of empty at this point. Interesting to note that Hordeman boasts are said to still work. Which, of course, gives them a religious motivation of what we are doing is right because our boasts work. And the Wes Warrens feeling like what we are doing is wrong because our magic is failing. Yeah, and it's not totally clear if the boasts are not working because Woden has like forsaken them Mm -hmm. or if it's because maybe they have less access to language since they're not writing like or it might be geographic I don't know if that's the answer but they just went away from their homeland and (laughs) the Bose might have like the whites a kind of regional field of power yeah but it sounds like they were working on the British Isle at some point so I agree yeah it's not really I don't think it's ever said exactly what is wrong with the boasts. What may be influencing and what is probably influencing all of these things is the true magic of this world or this dimension as we understand it. And that is known as the weird. Again, spelling, not as you think it, W-Y-R-D. There's probably a better pronunciation as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I like the concept of magic being called weird. (laughs) Because, of course, it is. It's a break from reality, a change in the way you would normally expect reality to function. You throw something, it's supposed to go to the ground. Nope. The weird makes Mm, it float. Sure, yeah. Something weird happened. But then we are given so much of a scientific explanation from the human side of this Mm -hmm. equation, Ryan, as well as Ulrich. There is seemingly two very different understandings of what this magic is and then what it can be used for. What are those two ways of looking at it? Yeah, I just sit thinking like the native people and the frugal wizards. Ah, are viewing the same power, Mm -hmm. the same thing that seems to be not just impacting the human characters, whether they are from one dimension or the other. They're also impacting the god characters. And from that very last line of the epilogue, it might even be the reason that Lagna stopped swimming upstream. That quote about the wall yeah. that they hit. And there's like pain and they and can't pain, go any and further. And they couldn't go any further. Maybe they ran into you the weird. You think that that's the weird? Exactly. Oh, and if okay. They, now this is really far speculation and I do want to just talk about the weird from the story. But okay. <laughs> my quick speculation is that if going upstream, going through dimensions towards what you think is the, the primal source and they eventually like run into this weird, maybe it impacted... Whatever they were using to travel upstream in the same way that the Bose of the Scops seems to be influenced by regionality or some aspect. But so you think that the weird is not just in this dimension. It's everywhere. No, no, no. It may just be in this dimension. I have no reason to believe it's outside of this dimension. How would that impact Logna's ability to travel further than if it wasn't like outside of this specific dimension. My understanding from, and again, there's not much because it's just like a single line, but is that Logna swam upstream 
and then hit the wall of pain and stopped. And she stopped this on this world. world. Yeah. yeah. So she's now on this dimension and can't go any further upstream. Why? The weird is my answer. She ran into the weird and she can't progress beyond it. Maybe for the same way that like technology weakens Lugna and the other like uh, god characters. Let's talk a little bit about just like the weird and what it is. And then we'll get into more of my speculation. Okay. Well, Ryan says that, quote, this is the only dimension in history that's ever been discovered to have something resembling magic, end quote. So as far as anyone on Earth knows, everywhere else is normal. And this is the only dimension in which things are weird. I don't necessarily know if that's true, but that's the information that we have yeah. from this uh, story. <laughs> and then his explanation for this is, quote, I think it's a strange quantum fluctuation involving collapsing probability fields. I think probability physics is somehow influenced by public perception here. They think there are invisible beings helping them, and this dimension changes the laws of probability. Unlikely things occur to fulfill people's expectations. End quote. This is where I think things get very interesting, because if we're supposed to believe what Ryan is telling us here, that there is some type of ability for belief to influence the natural probability of the universe or the dimension that they are in. So, okay, because I am not a science person, and when I read this quote, I'm just like, what? Uh. Okay, whatever. Let me just play a little bit of like devil's advocate for in case there's anyone else in the audience yeah, 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 who is no. like there me. Are who is other like, what people, are you talking about? Yeah, there are other people in the audience. I don't just mean to Just give drag me everyone. the magic. I don't want the physics. <laughs> this is similar to a concept that is, for me, most clearly illustrated in one of in one of the interludes from the Stormlight Archive, where we have two Ardents. Yeah, the flame spread. Yes. Mm -hmm. And one of them is doing an experiment measuring flame spread. The flame spread is moving around, changing size, yep. as little flames do, until the moment when the flame is measured. And once the flame is measured, it freezes in the size that it has been measured in. Yes. That is my understanding of a very basic quantum thing. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of different elements going on that do have some real world experiments to back up that concept. I prefer the Stormlight experiments. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I get that. The important quantity, I think, from that interlude is that the flame spread is being measured and recorded by the two different artists in two different yeah and rooms. i think they do it both ways right don't they like measure it with a measuring tape and write it down yes. and then they also have the writing person write first yes and just like make up a number and be like 17.5 and then the measuring ardent measures and it's 17.5 I believe they do it both ways. Exactly. And I think that that's what I was trying to get at with this concept of a relationship that seems to be existing between the whites and the people of this dimension, the kind of like passing back of beneficial aspects, an understanding and a recognition, but also like a bringing them into existence 
yeah. in the way that the humans want. Because kind of. they believe in it. Exactly. Then the it whites happens, fill basically. in the space that the humans have thought. Imagined. Imagined. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So the whites may just be like the amorphous weird before they are whites. They might just be the weird, just like a, mm. the force, uh-huh, whatever. Uh-huh. And the humans imagine them or they imagine whites and bogs and all of those things that are connected to them. And the weird is like, I'd like to exist in that form. And it goes and fills that imagined location for these humans. Yeah. So because we are Cosmere fans and I understand the entire world in terms of Cosmere references, I think this is similar to a Cosmere situation where you have investiture a.k.a. the weird Mm -hmm. in this situation, sort of the baseline magic. And then as people think of, let's just say, a green-eyed monster representing jealousy, the same image for the same thing gets imagined so many times that then a spren emerges from the investiture pool as a little green-eyed jealous monster. I think that's exactly right. And it wouldn't be crazy to think that an author would kind of borrow from their other ideas and kind of work them into a new shape. Of course. And when Ryan is talking about this probability physics and he's yeah, hinting at what like, is probability physics? I, Does that just mean like the likelihood that you throw a ball and it like goes in a line? <laughs> well, that's really good. That was actually fantastic. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. The double slit experiment is what you just described. Really? Yeah, you did great. <laughs> Uh, So I don't want to go down this road too much, but on a brief little explainer for what he's talking about, there are two major experiments, the double slit experiment and the thought experiment called Schrodinger's cat. And that's probably the one that most people are familiar with. Yeah. I know that you and I have discussed how stupid the cat is. Yeah. And the basic idea being, though, that there is a state of existence for very, very small particles, electrons being the primary example, where they exist within a probability field rather than a single distinct point in the universe. What does that mean? There's just like a a range of possibilities for where it is? Where probability would suggest that they are. Okay, here's another question that okay. might be too deep. What's probability? Probability is simply a way of describing a statistical likelihood of something happening. So in a game like poker, you have some exact percentage of being dealt five cards uh, that make up a royal flush or mm-hmm. two cards that get you a pair. Mm-hmm. I don't know the percentages off the top of my hand, but they are distinct. They are fixed. And you can memorize all of them and then you'd Mm -hmm. be a better poker player because you would know the probability of the next card that you want coming based on the likelihood of it happening however in an infinite universe or in a world with infinite dimensions and possibly infinite universes on top of them all overlapping functionally there's infinity and you're talking about probabilities up to infinity. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, and humans generally don't think about it. So all of our experiments are focusing down on really, really small particles. And that's where Ryan is talking about. He's saying that the thing that we would expect to happen normally, or with a high degree of probability, Mm -hmm. 
doesn't happen at that percentage mm. because people believe something different. Sure. But in the right world. Because or it's the, weird. Yes, exactly. Got it. In the, okay. If things were working correctly. So it's just like there's a higher likelihood that I throw the baseball and it zooms back over my head like a boomerang. There is a higher likelihood of that happening, and there might be an even higher likelihood if you can convince a bunch of people that when that you, what's gonna happen. with your scop magic and your bows, throw the baseball, it will turn around and come back the other direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Okay, cool. Well, we're just knocking it out of the park, describing probability. <laughs> you didn't know you were going to learn about probability physics today, kids. <laughs> There's a lot more that I could... You thought you were just here to talk about a silly fantasy novel. Never, never, never. I think that... We didn't bring this up. Brandon brought this <laughs> Yeah, to blame us. this on Brandon. Exactly. He made all of this happen. But we have another description from the text that I want to read because I think it will maybe put things into focus with the luck and the fortune because that's what the humans are really yeah. interested in. Yeah, because this is another aspect of like how they try to explain... The weird, like, it gets explained one way as, like, it's influencing probability physics. And then it gets explained in this second way as influencing luck. Here's the description. Quote, this place plays strangely with luck and fortune. Ulrich brought a bunch of blank lottery sheets in here. And something about this place, the weird, they call it, let him pick which numbers to play to win in our world. End quote. So we've got a uh, Back to the Future 2 vibe. Biff has stolen the almanac and is now able to bet on things to make him a billionaire. The way that this is introduced doesn't necessarily line up with all the probability nonsense that yeah, I just talked about. Yeah. <laughs> because there's something else missing that we don't quite understand. And to me, this is the belief aspect. Mm. Somehow, not only did Ulrich bring in blank lottery tickets he also somehow convinced the universe the weird the power that he needed those numbers like yeah. why nobody believed nobody else i assume believed that those numbers had to match up to another world except for ulrich who's trying yeah, to accomplish that of course so like how did he direct the weird to do that yeah. i don't know yeah and it it's like it, it's it almost seems like a manifesting yes like power where you believe any, something yeah anything you believe mm -hmm. strong enough in this dimension will happen but we don't really see that occurring with anyone else in the world so it's hard for me to believe that that really is a fundamental aspect of the power here yeah and i have a different theory kind of about what happened because what we do know with 100% certainty, or, you know, with as much certainty as we can have, is that Lagna can steal numbers. Right, yes. And we assume those are any numbers from anywhere because she has John's uh, password. she also says at one point that she doesn't even really know, like, the numbers that she's stealing. Like, when she sent the coordinates to John originally to mm -hmm. come to this dimension, she says something like she just sent it yeah. and she didn't really know like who was coming or like where they were going or she didn't have a whole lot of control so then it brings me back to the idea that even god figures are subject to the weird and even though she's able to manipulate it a yeah, little she's bit a little better understanding. she's not like in control of it 
definitely doesn't seem to be in control of it. And my speculation from before is that the weird is more powerful than either Woden or Lagna. And I don't know if we have a great answer, but this is clearly what interests the humans about this world and why Ulrich and Ryan are here. They want to take advantage of this luck or fortune ability. You know, if you just think of like all the possible dimensions of existence, each being controlled by billions upon billions of little knobs, and some knobs are, you know, just how many atoms does it take to create this element, and other knobs are doing other things. For some reason, the knobs of luck and fortune just got turned up for this dimension, <laughs> and it really is just, hey, we are saying there are infinite dimensions, I and mean, therefore th there has to be one that is weird. I guess if if it is something like probability, and there's just a, a higher likelihood of something good happening to you, right? Like there's just a higher likelihood that if you play the lotto in this dimension, you'll win. Like maybe that's all it is. I think that is what Ryan is trying to say. Because isn't that all luck is? It's just like... He wants something to play the lotto and he desires that. And the weird is like, I enjoy luck. And when you want something that's lucky, I want to fill that role. I'll just role. give it to you. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's all it is, is for some reason, when a person wants something or a group of people want something yeah. in this dimension, probability just works in their favor to give them exactly what they need. Kind of like the whites filling the space of yeah, belief yeah, that the yeah. humans have. Weird. Very. I also... It struck me that this concept of luck also kind of ties into something that John says about his life on Earth being really unlucky and that a lot of who he became in being John or Johnny came down to luck mm -hmm. of just, you know, the circumstances of his life, the circumstances that he was born into and like got himself into all of those things stacking on top of each other. Yeah, the snowball effect. Bad kinda. luck on top of more bad luck. Yes. And so I think it's, it, it, I wonder if this weird probability luck situation plays into his ability to be able to become Runian in this dimension that literally his luck changes. Absolutely. I mean, I think that his luck changes and because he is given some early positive reinforcements of Sephawin and Elsa yeah. treating him like a god, he's able to imagine himself differently for a hot second. And because he doesn't have his memory. That is helpful. <laughs> he's literally able to imagine himself differently because he has no other imagination. And then from that, the weird backfills to align in exactly the direction that produces the thing he is imagining, which is Runian, his new self. Yeah, cool. Fun story wow. when you break it all down. Uh, yeah, I really do feel like we've said, I wasn't super crazed about this story when I originally finished it, but the more we talk about it, the more I like it. I think that's the hardest thing for me to deal with in this year of Sanderson. We've had Tress and the Frugal Wizard's Handbook, both of which leave me wanting a lot more. Yeah. Tress was like a really positive experience. You know, you had a perfect little bit of frozen yogurt and it just <laughs> left you so happy. And then Frugal Wizard's Handbook was almost like uh, just a really fattening ice cream that I ate too much of. Like it, it was good. It was sweet, but it didn't leave me feeling the same way. You know, I was a little upset yeah. tummy kind of by the end. 
But I do want more of both. I want the frozen <laughs> yogurt and I want the ice cream. I just need to control my portions appropriately. Let's talk a little bit about the downfall of the weird or the kind of the downfall of magic in yeah, this world. Yeah, the world, like what's happening to it. We learn that humans and things, well, I guess I shouldn't say humans because they're all humans, but earthlings mm -hmm. and things from earth are, are poison to the weird, to the magic, the power in this world. In particular, we hear that whites and god figures are affected by the quote-unquote aura that people from Earth have. And we hear from Logna, quote, your world bleeds into ours and it poisons the whites, end quote. She also says that whatever this thing is, it's basically an opposite to them, to gods, to whites. And so they have like an anti-investiture, essentially, <laughs> to the weird. Earth is anti-weird. Yeah, and this poison is said to, quote, ferment and undo the runes in any place that outlanders or technology stay for longer than a month in, end quote. So time plus outlanders or technology equals the dissolution of the runes, dissolution of the magic and assumingly, you know, like uncontrolled whites. Yeah. No real explanation or concept that I can understand of why right. other than the whites break things down or build things up, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But technology breaks apart the whites' power in some way. Well, but it's not just technology. It's, it's also, also the humans themselves. Yeah. So it has to be an aspect of, I think, like dimensional okay. poison. But maybe it's only the humans themselves because they have machines in them. Yeah, so all maybe of them have like is... nanobots and some uh, different crazy stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, so maybe it really is just the technology and... Not the humans or the humans and not the technology? If you took the nanites out of John mm -hmm. and then put John in this dimension, I don't think he would impact the world negatively. Okay, I think that he would and I think that it is a dimensional problem. Maybe a dimensional problem that is widespread. I just have a very anti-corporatist vibe going on. And uh, I'm yeah. like, the Frugal Wizards Corporation is bad. They know they're poisoning everyone <laughs> in other dimensions, but they're just sending people out like little viruses, kind of. Like they oh, know they're sure. doing damage, but it doesn't matter because they're making a lot of money. Mm. And I mean, I think you can be pretty confident that they are doing damage and they know they're doing damage, even if not all humans are poisoned to every dimension. Right. That's what I'm saying yeah. is they know they're doing damage, but in this place, in this specific dimension, the damage is amplified because of the weird, because the weird exists there, the hmm. impact of the damage is greater and is unraveling the magic, is my theory. That's curious. I'd be interested to hear what our listeners think. Do you think that it is something inherent to dimension hopping? Or do you think that it is specifically the technology affecting the weird? We know that touching any machine hurts the gods, and we would assume that presumably the whites also can't touch them. It even affects the physical form that they inhabit, and Lagna became sick for like a week yeah. uh, after touching a machine. Yeah, she disrupts the nanites in some uh, people that Aylston is 
fighting and disrupting those nanites made her sick for, I think she says, at least a week, maybe multiple weeks. And she wasn't able to form a body in all of that time. She says, quote, Outlanders have been here in Maleport for too long. The stink of them brings us all pain. She took a deep breath. It makes me thin, Runian, like a plank sanded until you can see light coming through from the other side. I can't stop Ulrich. I've tried. My very essence breaks apart near him, end quote. So leaves a bunch of questions up in the air regarding, you know, why can a magic and the whites that can assemble and disassemble technology also, you know, not bear to be around it, not bear to have it in their world? You would think that to a white, a piece of technology, any machine would be nothing but its elemental parts. They just, you know, break it all down, put it all back together if they felt like it. Why? I guess, you know, what would be different? about Cephalin building a machine. That was what I was just going to say. Would it be different if the native people on this dimension built the Mm -hmm. same technology? I don't know. I don't have any answer to that. Exactly. That that is, I think, an important question, though, because it would maybe give us perspective on the dimension hopping question. Yeah. It's curious, though, because this is presented as a big problem for the world, But I believe this is a quote from Logna. She says, quote, but the decline of this people had been happening far, far longer than our arrival could explain, end quote. So it's like not just this anti-weird poison. There's something else going on. Maybe the same thing that is affecting Woden to be a little bit crazy. Okay. Well, you have now exploded my brain a little bit. I am feeling much like Schrodinger's cat, who is both alive and not alive simultaneously. (laughs) I'm dealing with a lot of stuff because I want more answers than we have. And the main story wasn't overall about exploring this type of stuff. It was just kind of like introducing the weird, introducing the effects of dimension hopping. And so you've left me in a place of confusion. I think what's best is to plan in next episode for a crazy Tyler theory all about the flow of time upstream, downstream, Logna running into the weird, maybe question mark, or just like what is going on Not so much with the magic, but with like these dimensions and the technology that's allowing the hopping to happen. Yeah. Next week is going to be right up your alley. You're going to explain to me this whole upstream downstream situation, because in the same way that I just can't understand quantum whatever, I also don't really understand this whole like flow of time traveling situation. Luckily, nobody else does either. But a little bit like what companies are doing with artificial intelligence, they just throw it out there and see what's (laughs) happening. Nobody's really going, we understand all of this and all of its ramifications. They're just instead, "Eh, what's the worst that could happen? We'll find out next week on Cosmere Conversations. Thank you all so much for (laughs) being amazing. Let us know your thoughts on all of these topics today and tune in next time for lots of fun time travel discussions. Brooke, can you take us away? Until next time, life before death. Strength before weakness. Journey before destination. 